everyone. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. Uh, I'm Zach, and this is my hilarious wife, Kristen. Here's the joke she shared. We're setting up our studio in our closet, and she says, hey, it's Studio C. Get it? C, closet. So laugh along with us. Uh, but we're excited to be with you this week. I am hilarious. But you know what? Before we talk about how funny I am, we just wanted to say thank you. We were nervous to get this podcast out there, and we were just so grateful for the kind comments, um, just a great way, a way better response than we thought it yeah. was going to be. I think we just, you know, you kind of put yourself out there on these things. It's a little scary, but... Just thank you so much for those that are listening and for just for being here yeah. for the kindness. Literally, we're blown away. It's been really nice. And we hope to convey our, our, our passion, our excitement for scriptures and our excitement for the things that we're learning from scriptures. We really want to help as many people out there as we can. So keep listening and, and keep liking and keep commenting and subscribe. That really helps us uh, reach more people and spread this passion with more people. So um, in this episode, we're studying hope. We're going to be in 1 Nephi chapters 19 through 22. And if you want to take a collective gulp, these are a couple of the Isaiah chapters. They're not the big ones in 2 Nephi that we all just skip. It's kind of the Isaiah light of the Book of Mormon. But there are two Isaiah chapters in here, and we're going to help you navigate through them. Uh, but we're looking for hope. So if you need a little pick-me-up in a negative world, then this is your episode. And I'm going to share um, the study tip, and that is don't be afraid of Isaiah. I, I don't know when this came to me, but it's just been, you know, as I was reading through Isaiah, I think the last time um, I was reading through the Book of Mormon, I just kind of had the mind shift of how cool Isaiah is. Nephi um, quotes him and takes all the time to recopy all of these things from Isaiah. And I just decided that I wasn't going to let it stress me out. It wasn't going to be something that I over was overburdened with or over. And if I didn't, you know, if I didn't understand every verse, it was okay. But instead just took it as a, hey, this is cool. Isaiah is quoted so many times by other prophets. What can I learn and maybe take it a little bit lighter? If you didn't think we were scripture nerds before, you do now because she just said that she thinks Isaiah is cool. And But well, we, we do. I am we, we do. Okay, so. um, in, in vain of that tip, one of the things that I think makes us intimidated when we read Isaiah in the Book of Mormon is we think we have to understand all of Isaiah. And we don't. This isn't, we're not studying Isaiah in these two chapters. We're studying Nephi, who's quoting Isaiah. It'd be very similar saying if you read a talk by President Uchtdorf and uh, he quotes something from uh, George Albert Smith, um, you don't have to go back and understand everything about George Albert Smith. Now, of course, it helps, but what you're interested in is why a modern prophet is quoting it to you. And similarly, when we look at Nephi quoting Isaiah in these chapters, it's the same question. We don't have to know everything about Isaiah. We just have to know a lot about Nephi, and we do. And if you don't, then go back and listen to the last couple of episodes of our podcast. So we're going to dive in. Uh, 1 Nephi 19, this is maybe a little bit cheesy, but I, I've done this 
before in a, in a class, and it's always a fun, uh, a fun little object lesson of sorts. But I have an old handkerchief in my office, and I lay it on the floor right in front of the door, and I just watch as students walk in. Uh, some will step on the handkerchief, some will inadvertently kick it, uh, some uh, may walk over it, they'll notice it, and some will walk around it. Uh, and then as we sit down, I ask them, how many of you noticed my object lesson? And most of them won't know what I mean. They think the handkerchief was falling out of someone's backpack. And I'll go and grab it and hold it up and say, this was the object lesson. And just ask them, how many of you stepped on it? How many of you think you might have stepped on it? How many of you don't know? And I always find the most innocent looking student I can, I can single out. And I'll say, did you step on this handkerchief? And she'll say, yeah, I think so. Uh, and I'll say, you know what this is, right before my grandmother passed away. And right then she puts her hand to her mouth and gasps and worries. And I, I can't keep a straight face when I'm telling a lie. So I say, no, it's not that. And we all laugh for a little bit. But then we have this kind of interesting discussion about why people would step on something that's on the floor. And they give all these interesting answers like it was in my way or I didn't see it. I was focused on something else. Or I had a student one year that said I saw it and I wanted to step on it. So. First Nephi 19, Nephi, um, with all of these chapters we've been studying, Nephi is an older man when he's writing this down. We tend to picture him as a young man writing this, but Nephi has lived his life. The Nephites and Lamanites have already split. Um, and I can't help but feel a little bit bad for Nephi. His dad charges him with being a leader of the family. And after Lehi's death, the Nephites and Lamanites split up. And so Nephi is writing all of this in a world where he may feel like he's kind of failed that mandate to keep the family together. At least he lives in a world where he sees his family torn apart. And so I think it's with anguish that he starts to write chapter 19. And listen, if you will, with the emotion he puts starting in verse 6. Nevertheless, I do not write anything upon these plates, save it be that which I think is sacred. I'm only going to write the things that really matter to me. Now verse 7. The things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set it not, and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I think as Nephi looks at his world, he knows what that feels like to have something, someone that's so dear to him. This Jesus who has been with him through everything, even when no one else was, and to have his family not care about it. That may be personally applicable to some of you out there where you feel like you care about the Savior, you care about um, your testimony, and maybe it's made light of by those close to you or by those that you wish were close to you. At the very least, I think we can all sympathize with this feeling that if you look at the news today, if you look at the world we live in, by and large, the Savior is being trampled. Things of a religious nature are, are treated with indifference at best, and with outright hostility at worst. And if you are a Christian and you are trying to be faithful, it might feel like the world is a bleak, dark, ugly, horrible place. And so it's fitting then that in this episode, we talk about hope. And if, uh, if you go to the end of chapter 19, this is where you get it from. And I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. 
I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scripture unto us, that it might be for our profit and our learning. Nephi is a pretty biased writer. He makes no no qualms about saying, I have a purpose and an agenda in writing, and it is to persuade people to believe in Christ. He said that multiple times. And He's so, a prophet. yeah, that's the job of a <laughs> prophet, his. right? Uh, so, purpose one in reading these upcoming two Isaiah chapters is you are looking for truth about Jesus Christ. Nephi is trying to persuade you to believe in Jesus and not trample him, not set him at naught, not treat him casually, not forget about him, not be so distracted by other things in your life that you accidentally step on him. And then, verse 24 I speak unto them, saying, Hear the words of the prophet. You who are a remnant of the house of Israel, a branch which have been broken off, hear the words of the prophet which were written unto all the house of Israel, like them to yourselves, that you may have hope. And that's the verse that stuck out to me the last couple times I've read these. Nephi's purpose in quoting Isaiah is, of course, to persuade us to believe in the Savior. But he's going to do it by teaching us things about God and our relationship with God that bring us hope. So the question that's driving our study today is, what truths can we learn from chapters 20 and 21 in 1 Nephi that bring us hope and that uh, lift us up in a day when maybe we might feel to despair and worry? So first off, we're going to start here right off in 1 Nephi chapter 20, verse 2. Nevertheless, they call themselves of the holy city, but they do not stay themselves upon the God of Israel who is the Lord of hosts, yea, the Lord of hosts is his name. And this stuck out to me because of the word holiness. And I have just been thinking so much about holiness and reading a few talks in the recent general conferences about holiness. First off, from Sister McConkie, she says, Holiness is in the striving and the struggle to keep the commandments and to honor the covenants we have made with God. Holiness is making the choices that will keep the Holy Ghost as our guide. Holiness is setting aside our natural tendencies and becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. And then another from Elder Christofferson. If we yearn to dwell in Christ and have him dwell in us, then holiness is what we seek in both body and spirit. And I like this. This to me, holiness brings me hope. And for me... It brings me hope because it's an action. When we are seeking holiness, it's us seeking God. It's us taking that time, but it's an action that we put on ourselves, and that gives me hope that I don't just sit there. That's not how faith works anyway. Mm -hmm. But I don't just sit there and wait for it to happen, but that I can do something about it. I've always been impressed by the Bible dictionary definition of holiness, which is, something that is set aside or set apart for a sacred purpose. So a holy time is a time that you set aside to go and be with God. Of course, he can always be with you, but it's something different for you to seek to be with him. Uh, the second verse that I really liked is a couple of verses later in verse 10. And this one's maybe uh, well known to some of you, but uh, verse 10 says, Behold, I have refined thee, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. I heard a story a couple of years ago that I really liked where uh, a lady was writing an article 
on a verse in the Old Testament that talks about the Lord being a refiner and purifier of silver. It's in Malachi. Uh, and she's trying to understand what that means. And so she goes to a silversmith in her, in her city and doesn't tell him why she's there, just tells him, I just want to observe you working. And so she observes him working throughout the day and she notices a couple of things. Uh, first of all, she notices uh, the, that he takes the silver, this long rod of silver, uh, and he holds it in the fire, and she notices that he holds it in the hottest part of the fire. And she asks him why, and he says, well, it's only the hottest part of the fire that has the strength to purify the silver. I can't just heat it up. It has to, it has to melt almost. He says, she says, that must take a lot of work. And he says, yeah, not only that, but I have to keep my eye on the silver the whole time. I can't be distracted because if I leave it in that hottest part too long, it'll melt or it'll burn and then it's useless. If I don't keep it in long enough, it won't burn away all of the impurities and it'll break or fracture. It's likewise useless. And she says, well, with all of that, then how do you know, how do you know when it's done? How do you know when it's refined or purified enough? And he says, well, that part's actually pretty easy. I pull the silver out and when I can see my reflection without mar in the silver, I know that it's completed. And so to look back at that verse, behold, I have refined thee and chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. One thing that brings hope in a world or in a life that might be kind of depressing or dark is to remember sometimes God is holding us in the hottest part of the fire because he's refining us. And to remember that his eye is constantly on us. There's never a moment when he's distracted or looking away. And that the moment we begin to look like him is the moment that we, re we achieve that refinement and that purification. And that brings me a lot of hope to realize, hey, this thing that I'm going through that's difficult or this world that I live in that's difficult, God allows it to be that way on purpose. And if I just will stay true to him and I won't give up, then he'll make this a refiner's fire and not just one that burns me up and, and leaves me dried out. I recently had a, a friend um, talk about a conversation she'd had with someone where he pointed out the, the scripture in Doctrine and Covenants where much is given, much is required. We often think of that as the blessings, like where much is, where you're given much, then you're, you're required to give much too. And um, he kind of turned that around and said, where much trial is given, much is required. And I like thinking that in the context of that story you just said, because it makes you think a little, it kind of gives you that mind shift of, we're also given trials um, and going through things so that we can share, be strengthened, obviously, in our testimony of the Savior as we, as we take his image upon us, but also as we share with others, we strengthen others in our trials. So when we're given those things that we share and we reach out and give in that way. Yeah. And in fact, maybe to go with that, our, our next point is from the next chapter in 21, mm -hmm. verses 14 through 16. And, and these are also maybe more well-known verses, um, at least in this context. But it speaks to that point of how the eye of the refiner is constantly on us and how he won't forget us. And I don't want to talk about verses 14 and 15 because it talks about a mother with a sucking child and you're the mother with the sucking children. <laughs> uh, and so you can speak to that much better than I can. Well, the verses are, we'll start in 14, but behold, Zion has said, the Lord hath forsaken me. Which anyone would think if, like you look at the world today and that's a pretty 
common thing someone might think, right? That God must have forgotten this world if he was there in the first place at all. How often do you hear that from people? Or I know I heard that a lot from people on my mission. Look around. God isn't here. Mm-hmm. He doesn't love us. Look what's happening. Um, but it, he goes on to say, And my Lord hath forgotten me, but he will show that he hath not. For can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget yet. Will I not forget the O house of Israel? Anyone, I'm sure there are people out there that have, nursed a child, and you can't forget very long, (laughs) for very long, that you need to feed that baby. Um, And what more needs to be said about that one? I think that's a perfect analogy, right? Um, He does not forget us, even though maybe it seems like it sometimes, we know that he is there. And I, I just... It's almost That's like, all there is to it. It's almost like Isaiah's <laughs> making a joke. Like the most ridiculous thing you can think of is that a woman would forget the child that is currently nursing on her. Mostly and, because her own body's reminding her. Yeah, exactly. Even if that were possible, God will not forget you. In the furnace of your affliction, his eye is constantly on you and he won't forget you. Verse 16, I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. Uh I have literally left the scars in my hands so that I'm constantly reminded of you and the, the trials and the, the difficulties you've gone through. Um, so our last point um, comes from the final verses in chapter 21. Uh, and I found this just recently. I kind of believe that these are Nephi's favorite verses. Um, not only does he quote them here in verses 22 through 25, chapter 22, the next chapter, um, is Nephi paraphrasing and explaining these verses. So he essentially quotes them again. And then if you want to look up in 2 Nephi 6, Nephi includes a sermon from his brother Jacob. And in that sermon, Jacob says, uh, my brother Nephi told me to quote these verses to you. And then he quotes these same five verses. And so it starts with with 22, and they can get kind of confusing, and we won't read all of them or look at all of them, but it starts with, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. Uh, And the next couple of verses are this idea that God is doing a great and marvelous work among all people, not just the traditional expected converts or the traditional expected church members. He's doing great and marvelous things with people everywhere. And you can probably talk a lot more to that. You work with the small seed and some of the conferences you've been through about how many different places and how many different kinds of people are coming to the church, working with the church, spreading the gospel, different ways of spreading the gospel. Well, I think we can see that as we, you know, look at some of the the um, personal stories that are being shared through um, the church's media campaigns and things of getting these people that, um, are finding the gospel through curious means, I guess you could say. Um, the prophets, it's kind of fun to think actually how prophets would have prophesied about social media. Because so many people are getting the gospel that wouldn't have otherwise through um, through people posting, through these, I mean, there were reaching parts of the world that would have never been reached before through those things. And it's really powerful to see how that's happening. Well, with the stats, the last year, so 2016's Light the World campaign, was at 300,000? I wish I knew exactly, but I mean, 
each year for the past three years that they've done the Easter and the Christmas campaigns, we've trafficked to the church's websites and visiting and people requesting visits and things has like tripled or quadrupled each year. And so, and that is because there is more involvement from people sharing their own stories and the reach to that is unbelievable. I asked a young lady tonight, uh, she mentioned that she had started posting religious themed uh, posts to her Instagram account. And I said, how many people do you reach with a post like that? And she says, I've got two or 300 followers. And I just thought it would have taken me two or three days to get that many people to listen to or to look at a message, let alone that many doors. That would have taken me that many days to knock on that many doors. But so it takes me two or three days on my mission to do that. And it takes her one minute to post. God is doing a marvelous work in unpredictable, new, and exciting ways. And that's what those verses are talking about. At the very end, though, is the verses we really wanted to mention. Um, and maybe we can we can talk about this. We, we had one of our listeners, who's a really good friend of ours, um, but she texted us a question, and we would love to take time in our episodes to answer questions. Um, so maybe, I don't know if you want to paraphrase her question or read it or... Yeah, well, we thought... That we were like, oh, hey, this fits in great with what we wanted to talk about. She just said, maybe if we could talk specifically about steps we can take now to make sure our kids have all the armor they need to stay true. Um, she said she's having a hard time sleeping, worrying about it, because, like, what is it going to be like when our kids are teenagers? She has young kids, kind of like we do right now. And, and you know, that's exactly what we're talking about. Where's the hope? This is scary. And although I'm... This is something we're both really passionate about, so maybe even sometime we'll, for sure, we'll address that further in other episodes or even a special episode, I guess. Ashley, we're going to do a special episode on this. Just it's, for you. It's yeah. coming up. but <laughs> We do special requests. No. Yeah. Anyway, but um, I think this, what we're talking about today, addresses that. There is hope to be found um, if, if our eyes are just pointed on the Savior, especially, and that's obviously less technical way to answer the question but so here's the verse that we thought addressed ashley's question and that maybe gives hope um this is verse 25 in first nephi 21 thus saith the lord even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered for i will contend with him that contendeth with thee and i will save thy children there's a story in the old testament um, in, this is Second Kings, if you want to follow along, chapter 6. But Syria is at war with Israel, and they keep losing repeatedly. And the king of Syria goes to his aides and essentially says, are you guys fighting for me or against me? Because we seem to lose every single battle. And his aides say, no, it's not us. Israel has a prophet, and he is telling the king of Israel the things you are saying in your bedchamber. And so the king of Syria says, essentially, well, we got to take out this prophet. Where is he at? They send spies out. They find out that he's in Dothan. And they go and besiege his town. So Elisha is the prophet. Uh, he has this young man, this aide that runs into his room and wakes him up and says, essentially, there's an army here. I'm, he's nervous. He's worried about it. Uh, and Elisha says, this is 2 Kings 6, verse 16. If you want a wall quote, then here it is. Elisha answered, he answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then he prays in the next verse, and he says, I pray thee, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. 
And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Perhaps one of the most hopeful things that Isaiah or that Nephi quotes in those verses of Isaiah is that line that I will contend with them that contend with thee. We do not fight the world alone. In fact, we're not even close to alone. We outnumber the enemy by hundreds. They that be with us are way more than they that be with them. And not to mention the very Lord of hosts. Hosts means army. So the phrase Lord of hosts means Lord of the army. The Lord of the army, the God that created the world, is on our side fighting for us. So you may look at the world and think that it's bleak, or you may look at the world that your youth face, that your children face, or that your teenagers face, and think that it looks ugly and scary. And yes, we can, again, in future episodes, talk about some practical steps and things to do, but can we at least look at that world and peel back the veil from our eyes a little bit and see those that are with us are way more than those that are against us. Our youth have angels on their side, and the very God of Israel fights for them. Amen to that. I just, I love that verse. And just to recap, all those things that bring us hope, um, that we can seek after holiness to be close to him, that he is with us in our affliction, um, that the Lord doesn't forget us, and he never will forget us. And lastly, that he contends with us in all that we do. So to end our episode, uh, teaching tip for this week. Uh, here's kind of a, an interesting one. Um, trust students and the scriptures. Uh, you've been in the same gospel doctrine class as I have, and I've had great gospel doctrine teachers in my life, but one thing that happens very rarely uh, is the gospel doctrine teacher turning class over to the students to study the scriptures on their own. It's usually this very uh, strictly guided tour through the scriptures. Well, these chapters in Isaiah would be a great place to turn them over to someone. Ask them a question like we asked, and then quit bugging them. Give them time in class to read the scriptures. Or if it's a family home evening, ask your kids to read and give them 10 minutes to do it on their own. Send them somewhere private in the house. Have them read. Trust that God can inspire them to find things in the scriptures, that the scriptures have power in and of themselves without us needing to talk about them which is ironic on a podcast talking about scriptures, but, and then invite them to share what they found. And you'll be blown away at what happens when you let people just study scriptures. All right. That's it for tonight's episode. Um, thanks for being here again. Reach out to us. Catch us on Instagram at Krista Joe Horton. Zach's at millennial.mormon. We would love to hear from you and see you next week.